comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. Imagine, if you will, a politician today standing on a soapbox addressing the crowd. If you're going to vote for me, you're voting to lose your homes and families. You're asking for higher taxes and lower wages. You're deciding in favor of losing all you love best. So come on, he's on my side. Yeah, <laughs> not even rotten, potato, not rotten tomatoes would be thrown. They would just walk away uh, shaking their heads. What kind of a politician is this? Why on earth would we follow such a person? But in a way, that's precisely what Jesus is saying. If you want to be my disciple, well... You have to learn to hate family, give up your possessions, and get ready for a nasty death. Hardly the way, as we say, to win friends and influence people. But what if we were to look at it this way? That there are people to be rescued who, without our help, would perish. And it's a journey that will take us through mountain passes, through very difficult terrain. And we're going to need to probably leave behind the backpacks that we've been traveling with to get through these places. It's a mission. We know the costs, but people's lives are at stake. And so will we go on this knowing that not everyone will come back? You know, we still have in our congregation people who made that decision in World War II. That there was something to fight for in different eras since then, but there has been something to fight for that required possibly the ultimate sacrifice and they made that choice and entered into the battle anyway. Now, these are the uh, literature itself and movies of course mostly out of great epic literature shows us this battle, shows us these choices and don't we love those? We get caught up in the story, uh, you'll probably all know by now that I just really love the J.R.R. Tolkien and the C.S. Lewis, the Chronicles of Narnia that are always about these kind of adventures, and J.R.R. Tolkien, the Lord of the Rings. They're wonderful, epic stories. Uh, if you've seen the Lord of the Rings, uh, if you haven't, I'll give you a bit of a background. There are... Uh, little people called the hobbits and they're small they they're not warlike at all they're peaceful people and they live in the shire and they don't go outside of the shire ever and uh and they're not warrior people at all they hardly know how to hold the sword or, or anything and so they 
they're, they're peace-loving people. But there's a ring that is there, and with it, with the ring, comes great evil. In fact, if the ring gets into the hands of the wrong person, of the very evil person, then evil will completely infiltrate every corner of all of the lands. And Gandalf the Grey, the wizard, comes and tells, uh, comes to Frodo the Hobbit and says that he is really the only one with a true heart who can carry this ring to its destruction in Mordor. And he says, oh, I can't do that. I'm just a hobbit. I can't, I can't do that. And then all of the others, the elves and the dwarves and all of the rest come and, uh, and they all start arguing as to which of them is going to carry the ring, but none of them can carry the ring. And finally, this little hobbit stops them and says, I'll take on the quest. I'll take the mission. And so Gandalf the Grey, um, there are three other little hobbits that go with him. And he says to one, Samwise Gamgee, you stay with Frodo. Don't let him out of your sight, Samwise. And he's not a very bright uh, hobbit, but he's a very loyal hobbit. And so they go through these uh, many uh, battles with these others, Strider and, and the dwarves and the elves, and, and they, they come to this place, and it has been a lot of darkness, a lot of battles, and finally Frodo is really at the end of his ability and his strength. And he's almost to the point of just giving the ring over to the enemy and he says to Sam I can't do this Sam and Sam says I know it's all wrong by rights we shouldn't even be here but we are it's like in the great stories Mr. Frodo the ones that really mattered full of darkness and danger they were and sometimes you didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass away. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those were the good stories, the great stories that stayed with you, that meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I now know. Folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't. They kept going, because they were holding on to something. Frodo said, what are we holding on to, Sam? Sam said that there's some good in this world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. See, these epic stories in literature always point to the epic story, the one true story of God who is making the world right. And he's making it right through Jesus and through us. 
who are in Christ. But what this passage is about, it's not about family relationships. If we look at it to figure out how we are supposed to be in our families, we've got the wrong end of the stick because this passage is not about that. Jesus has addressed how we are to be with our families elsewhere. And he has reiterated the fifth commandment, that you are to honor your father and your mother. But remember that it's the fifth commandment. And the first commandment is that you are to love the Lord your God. And he goes on with all your heart and with all your strength and with all your might. And so loving our family, honoring our family, always comes secondary to our love of God. And that's basically what Jesus is saying. He is saying, like these epic stories, we have entered into a quest. When we follow Jesus, we have set foot on the most important epic story that ever existed, ever. But there's a cost to doing so. And Jesus wants to make sure that as his disciples, we know the cost of discipleship. And that's what this passage is about. It's about have we counted the cost of discipleship? He set his face for Jerusalem. He knows that certain death awaits him there. He is absolutely disciplined to go there, dedicated to go to torture and death for us and the whole creation. And he turns to the crowds who are following him. He's headed to Jerusalem, set his face like flint, and he turns to them and says, if you would follow me, then count the cost of the discipleship. Count the cost of what it means to truly follow me. And he uses the image of someone who is going out to build. He says, who going into a building project does not count the cost? You put together a budget. You know how much all and every, the workmanship, the goods, uh, putting it all together and then, you know, figure in another few percent because it never comes out as to what you think it's going to come out to. But do the budget, do the thing, do the work in advance to know what it's going to cost you. Who going into a building project doesn't do that because if they don't, they get halfway through and they're the laughing stock of everybody because they've had to give up because they haven't counted the cost ahead of time. See, if we acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, as we do in the Nicene Creed at every single service, it means that he's truly Lord, that he's number one and everything else is secondary to that. Everything, every single part of our lives is claimed by God. God has a claim on everything. He has a claim on our relationships. He has a claim on our possessions. He has a claim on our life. If we are to be his disciples, have we counted the cost of that discipleship? It means that from the bedroom to the boardroom to the bank, those come under the authority of Christ. 
Oswald Chambers puts it this way, many of us have heard Jesus Christ's first follow me to a life of liberty from sin, that is true, to joy in him, that is true, to gladness, that is true. How many of us have heard the second follow me? Deny your right to yourself and do to death in yourself everything that never was in me. Are we spectators or soldiers? Are we recruits or just standing on the sidelines watching what is going on? Truly, this is not a spectator sport. Christianity means that we are involved in a quest, in a mission, in a journey. Another theologian puts it this way, if being a disciple of Jesus costs us no pain to acquire, no self-denial to preserve, no effort to advance, no struggle to maintain, then this isn't what Jesus had in mind. But he's not asking of us anything other than he himself has been willing to do. In effect, he says his Christian life isn't for sissies. You know, um, in the West, uh, we are never probably going to be asked for our life in return for our discipleship, in return for following Christ. But our brothers and sisters around the world, that is what is required of them sometimes. This week, just a couple of days ago, uh, I learned that Archbishop Caddy in Nigeria, an Anglican archbishop, had been taken at gunpoint with his wife. His wife was found in the car, but we don't know where he is. There are other Orthodox bishops that have been taken in like manner. There are Christians who have been killed, and that is the cost of discipleship in some areas of the world. We don't see that, and we probably will never be required to go that far. We probably won't even be asked to give up the boardroom and go and be a missionary somewhere. But there are still costs for discipleship. There are still costs that need to be counted. But you know, the disciples, when confronted with this, said to Jesus, after he had preached about his flesh and his blood, he had said to those following him in John's gospel, unless You eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. You will have no life within you. And at that point, and my flesh is the life of the world. And those who were following him were, how, how can this be? And they left. And Jesus turned to his disciples and said, will you too desert me? And Peter said, where would we go? Where would we go? You are the Lord of life. There is no life outside of you, Lord. And we know that also. That the fullness of life 
is with Christ. But there's a battle going on. And we have to count the cost of being part of that epic story. We've been invited in. And it might mean that we need to make some difficult decisions. It might mean that we might need to testify about a crime when everyone else will vilify us for doing so. It might mean refusing to endorse a relationship before God that's been conducted in a way that dishonors him. It might mean refusing support to a family member for a decision that may be immoral in God's eyes. There's still a cost. But we have received free grace. We have received something completely free. I've been uh, reading um, a book on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Some of you might know that name. Uh, The book is by uh, Eric Metaxas, a current uh, modern uh, day writer. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer was um, in Germany, one of a a number of Germans, actually, who, um, who came to realize the evil of Adolf Hitler and Nazism. The state church um, actually collaborated with the Nazi state. It actually tried to change the Christian message to an Aryan message. Such was the power of evil. Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, became uh, part of the confessing church and wrote a lot about what it meant to be a Christian and to stand for Christianity. He counted the cost of that discipleship and knew that there was nowhere else to go. In fact, he wrote a book called Discipleship. And he coined the the phrase, there is no cheap grace. He said, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. See, grace is given to us freely. Life is given to us freely. Jesus went to the cross and gives us freely of salvation if we will take it. But it's very costly. It costs the Son of God his life. And he says to those who would follow him, there is a cost. And the cost is our sacrifice of all of our lives. Every single area of our lives. But it is filled with new life in return. And so, have we counted the cost? Are we willing to follow Jesus on his terms? Are we willing to engage in the battle knowing that he specifically equipped each and every one of us for that task, even if the odds seem overwhelming 
as they did for Frodo. Let us trust him with all of who we are, for he is the only captain to follow. In the words of today's collect, grant us, O Lord, to trust in you with all our hearts. For as you always resist the proud who confide in their own strength, so you never forsake those who make their boast of your mercy. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.